Hi, this is Mike Palmer. Welcome back to Trending in Education. Today's episode is part of our Best of Trending in Ed series, where we bring back some of our favorite conversations from Trending in Education episodes over the years. We've now done close to 500 episodes, so there's plenty to choose from. This one is a conversation with Dr. Mohan Sani, who is at Kellogg School of Management in Evanston, Illinois, at Northwestern University. Mohan teaches technology, innovation, marketing there. He is leading their innovation program as they look to the future. He's been in that role for a little while, and when the pandemic hit, Mohan was forced to apply a lot of the practices that he had been working on and a lot of the innovation that he had been experimenting with suddenly became front and center. We caught him at the beginning of that conversation. It'd be great to see what he's up to now. Let's pick up here with my conversation with Melissa Griffith and Dr. Mohan Sani out of Kellogg School of Management. Thanks as always for listening. Really excited to have here with us Dr. Mohammed Swani, author, the professor from my alma mater, and, and now associate dean for digital innovation and McCormick Foundation professor of technology at the Kellogg School of Management. We're here to talk to him about his plans to reinvent the MBA. Dr. Swani, opening thoughts. Well, this has been a crazy uh, past few months, as all of you can imagine. Our business, as we know it, was turned on its head. Uh, whether it is executive education or MBA classrooms. We are, as most top business schools are, are in a difficult uh, position because we sell a very, very high price premium product, uh, which is premised on the value of the in-person experience and the socialization that comes with it. Mm -hmm. uh, within the span of a few weeks, we were forced to uh, transition and, and turn everything into a virtual and digital experience. And we still have... Uh, a lack of clarity around when uh, we will be able to resume in-person classes. But with crisis comes opportunity. It has yeah. been a, a phenomenal time. I think there's never been a better time to innovate. Yeah. In many ways, it seemed as though you were uniquely prepared for this challenge in, in some interesting ways. So I'd love it if you could maybe flesh out for our listeners your background and what you were focusing on right around the time of this perfect storm when you... Hopefully, we're in a pretty good position to captain your ship. So I have been at, uh, at Kellogg for almost 28 years and uh, always sort of been interested at uh, looking at the intersection between marketing, technology, and innovation. And I've been really interested in how uh, technology can be used to transform businesses. And, and high business is no exception. You know, if you think about it, the business of business schools is ripe for disruption. There's an Indian proverb that I like, which is that under a bright lamp, there is a great darkness. We teach business strategy, but our own business models, our business strategy, our value propositions, our offerings are deeply flawed. Mm -hmm. uh, we have been, for the past several years, pricing ourselves out of the market, mm -hmm. uh, creating, you know, the price of education continues to increase. The number of applicants to business schools is declining. And so I think COVID-19 merely added fuel to a fire that was already burning, Yep. Uh, which is that our fundamental assumptions about how we deliver education and the cost structure 
that we have and the reach and scale that we have are simply unsustainable. Right. So looking at this, even a couple of years ago, I realized that there is a way to scale our, our audience to, to people worldwide and at a more affordable price point. So why don't we explore digital methods of delivering executive education? However, there is an orthodoxy. The orthodoxy is anything that happens in the four walls of the classroom is high value and anything that is done online is cheap mm-hmm. and inferior. And this notion stereotype had been strengthened by the failure of the so-called MOOCs or the massively online uh, courses. Yes. Because uh, I, I joke that the MOOCs follow the communist work ethic, which is I pretend to pay you and you pretend to learn. Right? <laughs> it's kind of like uh, 50,000 people show up for a course, 6% of them complete it. So, right, right. Uh, so in between that extreme of $50 price courses from Coursera or Udemy and the $100,000 MBA, I felt there had to be something in between. Yes, yeah. yes. You know, truth is rarely black and white. That is why gray is the color of wisdom. Mm. Uh, there's sort of some hybrid in between that is a, that is better than and more cost-effective than either extreme. So yep, this yep. is where I started to work on the creation of what we call SPACs, which are small private online courses yeah. where cohorts of two to 300 students taking a six to eight week course uh, where you, you do a lot of effort up front to create the uh, video-based content, interactive yeah. exercises, self-paced and self-guided interactive learning. You complement that with the community that you build. And then that is a, actually a flipped classroom because the all of the, the sort of concepts and frameworks are explained in bite-sized videos and exercises that apply those concepts. But then we complement it with live sessions that yeah. I host. Right. So we, we do a series of live webinars to complement where people can ask questions mm-hmm. and edit applications. So there's some thoughtful design going into what you're delivering. And what well, why I find that very interesting is that it's a counterpoint to a lot of the emergency remote teaching that, that happened in the response to COVID, where you were a couple of years, you were actually 20, 30 years ahead, but you were prepared to deliver with some design intent, an online learning program, whereas many others were not prepared to deliver online at all. And that's where they immediately had to hop into their Zoom rooms and just run with it, which is why I think your perspective is, uh, is really unique. And it's really a great opportunity for us to hear from you, because it also sounds as though you were delivering these Spocks, by the way, as a Star Trek fan, I also prefer <laughs> Spock. Yeah, to anyway, it just it just seems smarter to begin with, but uh, but just the the idea that you were delivering these spots, you were thinking about transforming through digital, and then COVID happens. I think that's just a very singular moment in time. I think we felt oddly lucky doing a trend spotting show about learning and education, where everything suddenly pivoted. To your point, it's like an accelerant. This COVID pandemic trends we saw three, four, five, ten years down the road are now happening you know, months, weeks away. It's a really transformative time. And then Melissa, maybe from your perspective, coming out of Kellogg, I'd love to get a little bit of your take on what it, what was your experience as someone who graduated maybe 10 years ago or something? So, so I think that's an interesting dimension to bring to, to, to Dr. Sawney as well is like, as someone who had been through Kellogg's program, what did you learn? And, and then for me, honestly, I got my MBA from the school of hard knocks. You know, I, I just, I've been in, in business for a while and kind of played with my head up, but I think it's an interesting, 
uh, set of perspective. So, so Melissa. I am class of uh, 2007 at Kellogg. Seems like a lifetime ago. When I went to do my MBA, we're a much different world than we're in right now. It was go to one of these top MBA programs or, or virtually nothing else out there. Since that, since graduating from it and being in the education space myself, there's so many other choices. Do I, first of all, do I go back and get an MBA? Or do I go more into technology or data science or data analytics? Like those are all the challenges. Like since since I've left Kellogg, I've learned all these other skills too that yeah. are necessary for for growing the world. So I've long looked back at the MBA program and even being a feeder, like uh, being one of the people who delivered the GMAT, they then get uh, people into business school. I've looked and said like the MBA program, you can see it's declining uh, because they're, they're not innovating quickly enough. And uh, Mohan touched on a lot of uh, what the reality of it is, right? When you're competing, like when you're a hundred thousand dollar MBA program, competing with less, like say the boot camps that are like ten thousand dollars, like when right. a student is making that trade off, they're not necessarily one for one in the educational quality, but they are. The price relative to the value is probably very. The return on investment is probably very similar, yeah. right? And I think that's one of the challenges that I have known the MBA was going to have to face, and so. It's good to hear uh, the professor talk about moving into small small courses, which I think is very needed because of, of lifelong learning. I know you've done a lot of work on that, right. um, Mohan. So I'd love for you to talk about just where you see lifelong learning going, because as a lifelong learner, I've felt also that I've had to continue to upskill and to see Kellogg bringing degrees like that or any school bringing degrees like that. It's going to be helpful. So a great question, Melissa. Yeah. I mean, and I will sort of start with a confession, which is we have failed you. We have failed you as alums because I'll draw an analogy that in the enterprise software world, what they used to do was sell you a huge block of software, which you paid millions of dollars upfront for. And then they, you would say, we'll see you in three years when we come up with a new version. Mm -hmm. That's how we're doing business education. Yeah. You know, we give you a 200,000, it's not 100,000, it's $200,000. No, yeah. Two years. <laughs> when we, you, give, you give you a $200,000 degree, but then Melissa, we tell you, you're done for life. Well, that's not true. Your learning never stops. So yeah. what have we, when I say I, we have failed you, what have we done to engage you on an ongoing basis to continue to upgrade you, upskill you, yeah. and more importantly, do it in a way that is responsive to your ongoing evolution of your needs, yeah. your career, your yeah. job. So, yeah, yeah. so you know, when the entire software industry has moved to SaaS, which is software as a service. Right. Oh, think about Microsoft. They used to do Office 2010, Office 2013. Now they have Office 365. Mm -hmm. Instead of three years, every three weeks you get features. And whenever you log in, the software is up to date. Where is learning as a service? Right. So that is something I'm working on now mm -hmm. is we want to offer you Kellogg as a service, mm -hmm. which will, you know, why not create a subscription-based learning service where we use machine learning and artificial intelligence to figure out what is your profile, what is your what are your learning needs. You yeah. look at your previous experience, and we figure out what is it that you need to learn. Yeah, just like Netflix tells you what movies you ought to watch, I will surface for Melissa saying this is what you need to learn this month. And by the way, the day she changes jobs and her LinkedIn profile changes, my learning algorithm adapts and says, now you move into product management. Here's a few things you might want to learn. So yeah. I give you a learning passport for life not just a degree or an MBA. And that way, if you can pay $39 a month for your Peloton, yeah. you can aim well by $200 a month for my service. Right, not right. to the past, Melissa. We have 60,000 alums at Kellogg. Yeah. If 10,000 of them buy into this service and 200 months of $1 million a year 
in subscription-based revenue. It's also, and I'd say that the, the flywheel that you build among your alumni in that context, assuming you get that adoption, if you can build that sense of community, but yeah. I think people are frequently seeking beyond a degree. You know, that's part of why, like the whole concept of going to business school for the network, this gives you some, some sort of stickiness to that network and some continuity. I think it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, because not only will I be able to then personalize this learning journey for a lifetime for you, but as you just pointed out, Mike, we can create communities of interest. Yes. Right? People in investment banking, people who are entrepreneurs, women in right. business, women right. in technology. So whatever your area of it, you can self-affiliate and, 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 and that organic community of interests can form around the content in the, the learning. Team. So, yeah, yeah. you know, you know we, we, are, we are leaving so much money and so much value on the table right. while graduating our students and wishing them good luck and goodbye forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, for, Until you come back for your reunion, you know, 10 years later when we ask you for money and then Melissa turns on and said, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> Which is why we drop off after about 10 years, we just have to be back. Is, is that correct? No, it makes a, it makes a ton of sense what you're saying. And it, I know it's, it's an amazing business model, but I think as a, just as a fellow Kellogg uh, alumni, I, I think it, it's something I want. It's something I create, right? Mm-hmm. Like I look the other sources. Okay. Yeah, the need. Right. Yeah. yeah. And right now I'm getting it from other sources. So I, I'm curious, what do you think are some of the competitors that you're going to be facing it in this space? Like who would you look at the competitors? You know, disruption is coming from lots of places. Yeah. And, uh, and as you know, that as, that that rarely uh, is it that the incumbents in an industry are the innovators, you know. Right. So, yeah, Clayton, Clayton Christensen. Yeah. Who recently passed? Yeah, he, mm-hmm. talk, he talked about it a lot. Mm-hmm. So, so one one phenomenon that I I predict will accelerate. It's starting already. Will accelerate is that you will see the emergence of faculty stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, these will be mega brands, you know. Yes. Uh, and 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 these people will branch out independently, mm-hmm. and they will uh, create their own. Uh, streaming or online yeah. uh, businesses. It's the Khan Academy. It's Scott Galloway, right? That is uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, 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 the entire model. Yeah, yeah. Galloway on his section four, which is, yeah. you know, he's now selling thousands of uh, two-week courses. Yeah. I think that today, and in fact, this is the distinction, Melissa, between uh, what you did in an MBA and what you need now. What you did in an MBA, you paid for certification, you paid for yeah. community. Now you need skills. Yeah. Right? You're going to pay for skills. You're going to pay for relevant and contemporary stuff that will help you on the job. Mm-hmm. I don't care. You don't want another Kellogg degree. You already have that, right? Yeah. So that is where you can create very targeted, mm-hmm. uh, specific skill-based learning that is contemporary, that is relevant to what's going on in business today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not teach you. You did not learn machine learning and AI when you were at Kellogg because this stuff didn't exist then. Right, but right. now you're going to get it. So if I create a two-week targeted program, say, Here's what you need to learn about platform strategy. Here's what you need to learn about digital payments. Here's what you need to learn about AI. Then there is a huge market for that. And I believe this is going to be the business schools don't do it. Mm-hmm. Faculty and third parties. Right. Uh, right. Uh, like there is a could like e Porsche in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. that is creating product management, you know, programs. There's right. a product school. There's, you know, all of these uh, general assembly. Mm-hmm. These are all startup companies that will that that will either rope in faculty or they will rope in industry experts. Right. So to, yeah. to provide these. The mm-hmm. other kind of competitor that I see is the 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 the, the, the universities and institutions that are more savvy online. 
Right. You know, I, I, I point out, you know, there are Southern, Southern New Hampshire University. Yes. Yes. University yes. of Phoenix online. I mean, yes. these folks have spent years perfecting yeah. the delivery model. And I think they can yeah. move it to space. Western governors. Yeah. All those guys. Yep. Yep. How, how important, like at Skylog and a, a Brandon school, like how do you, how important do you think the brand is going to matter in this space? Like is, are the Harvards and the Kellogg's and the Stanford's going to win or uh, can a University of Phoenix actually uh, supplement? And the brand still has value. Uh, the brand, because part of why one goes to a top university or a business school is the experience that you have in campus, but also the community and the relationships that you build. Mm -hmm. So that is still going to have value. But with that said, I think that that whole campus experience also needs to be reimagined to make it more accessible, more affordable, and more convenient. Um, mm -hmm. I will make a prediction that at least this is my agenda at Kellogg where I'm yeah. leading digital transformation initiative that in 12 months, and that's an aggressive schedule, yeah. but in 12 months, no course we offer will remain untouched by digital first DNA. That doesn't mean it'll be taught online. Yeah. If you're eat, that we will add some asynchronous components. We'll mm -hmm. add some, you know, so, so, so let me, let me point out, you know, an, an, an example. Why is it that if you go to a Wharton or a Harvard or a Kellogg, where there are 700 people in a class, why is it that 10 professors teach you the fundamentals of accounting in a classroom, right? Where everybody's teaching the same stuff. And by the way, those accounting principles are quite, you know, they're, they're, standard, they're yeah. quite stable, it's standard. Yeah. So why is it that we cannot take the best of those professors, record the lecture-oriented components, in small bite-sized video modules, along with interactive self-paced knowledge checks and exercises, and then move that into asynchronous mode, then you will still have in-person experiences. You'll come to the classroom. Yes. When the classroom, what I might have is a CEO who comes in and says, here's my balance sheet, analyze it. It's right. an interaction, it's debate, discussion, it's action learning. So we, we, you know, so we use digital for what digital is best at, we use the classroom for what is best, uh, classroom is best at. And you know who's done this? Retail. It's called an channel retail. Where yes. is our channel learning? Right, right. So that's no. that combine the best of online with the best of each person to create hybrid learning experiences mm -hmm. that are superior to what we do today. I mean, I, I think that's amazing because just if you think back on my Kellogg days, I remember, I don't even know if you guys still have that in place, how much value of premium we put on getting the best professors and not everyone got the same experience, right? We used to have a bit. We had a whole bit in work, Mike, for, in case I've never explained the the twisted nature of that as business school sometimes. We have to bid for our professors. And so you can only get to one really great professor or two really great professors in, in, in a quarter. Now you're saying you're going to bring that, you're going to demographize it. You're going to give it to everyone. I think that is that is awesome. I take 50% of the content that's lecture oriented and I move it online. Now I'm left with 10 sessions in class. I can do one of two things. I can either teach twice as many students so my productivity is doubled or I can have half, half as many students in the class. Which, yes. by the way, is what we are going to be forced to do with COVID-19. Yeah. Distancing in the classroom. Right, right. Now, instead of 60 people vying for airtime in a classroom, I have 25 students who I can really personally engage with in a more intimate way. And by the way, I'm not lecturing to them. I'm engaging and interacting with them. So right. it's a better experience uh, So for the students and a better experience for faculty. Yeah, I, I have a related uh, thought just around this as well in light of the 
emotionally tumultuous world that we're living in these days is how do you then also train the whole student, you know, engage the emotional side of your student body, and then also make sure you're reaching a, a diverse enough set of students, some of whom may be really struggling with a lot of the turmoil that we're all facing uh, these days. So I'd, I'd love to get any of your thoughts on, on that. Yeah, no, I think this stuff gets very real, Mike, because I taught about 150 students in the spring and two of them, one was recovering from COVID-19 and the other one had just been diagnosed and yep. was going through the, the, the disease. Mm -hmm. so, so this gets very real. Also, I had students who were stuck in India Mm -hmm. Students were stuck in Texas. Students were stuck in Boston. Yeah. So I was actually teaching a global audience, even though mm -hmm. these were all Kellogg full-time MBS yeah. students. So, right, right. Uh, so here's a few things that I did. And I strongly recommend that professors try to think about experiential innovation instead of just pedagogical innovation. Mm -hmm. You're teaching human beings, not just content. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I, so what I did in the week prior to class was I set up one-on-one -on -one meet and greets with individually, individually with students. I had a sign-up sheet on Google. They signed up and I, it was just a five minutes, get to know you because, you know, it's going to be much harder for me to kind of put names to faces in yep. a, you know, when you have 50 people on a video screen. So, and it was just also meant to be a health check. It's like, yeah. you know, that's where I found out that this student of mine, she's from Turkey, she's in New York. She's like, I just had COVID-19. I mean, I, I just, so, so it was very, you made it all human. So that way I got to know my students one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. before they came to class. The other thing that I did every week was I hosted virtual office hours one-on-one. Mm -hmm. -on -one. So anybody wanted to come, talk, you know, meet. And by the way, you can shorten the, you can create short five minutes, 10 minutes, yeah. you know, check-ins. Mm -hmm. then, the, uh, then I did something crazy at the end of the class, you know, which was, I, I was teaching an evening class, an evening class was around dinner. And so I said, here's what we're going to do in the final class. I had a bottle of wine personally delivered every student's home. Nice, nice. And, and if they didn't drink wine, I had a pizza delivered to them. <laughs> and then at the last 20 minutes of the class, we had a uh, final toast. To, nice. Because we had students who were graduating. Mm, yeah. So we all brought out our wines. And uh, then I also found out that amongst my students, there was a guy who was a stand-up comedian. There was another person who was a singer. Oh, uh, wow. And my course moderator, who is a rapper. So we had a performance. Yeah. We also told them, bring your pets, bring your significant others, wow. your kids. And it was a, you know, it was a virtual send-off. Wow. I feel like you could monetize, you could monetize that. I would recommend that faculty really think not faculty to student, but human to human. Mm. And, 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 and one has to go that extra mile to make the virtual appear human, but it mm -hmm. So, so I know this. Uh, so we're all very excited about what you're you're doing here. W what are you worried about? What do you think are the the downsides of, of going more online, bringing more flipped classroom into the model? Melissa, the first thing I'm worried about is us. I have met the enemy, and they are us, which is faculty alone. Um, yeah. mm. You know, people don't like change. Change is disruptive. Change is is, is uncomfortable, and and I think that. What we are realizing and what, what I am personally realizing is uh, teaching virtually is not teaching, it's performance. Mm -hmm. It's a performance. Yeah. It means you need camera presence. You need, yeah. look at me, I'm gesturing. Yeah, a lot of look at the time. Yes. And, and also your energy, the camera flattens you. 
Yes. So you have to inject. I am exhausted when I finish six hours a day sometimes during the Yeah, yeah. And, and it is, it, in my estimate, takes about 25% more energy. Each in front of when your camera is your favorite student as opposed to your classroom. <laughs> right. so, so I think that, that, that moving faculty into that mode of mm. sort of delivering, a cre- particularly now when you start to create professionally cre- uh, uh, cre- uh, short content, yeah, I, you know, you're in a studio. You are, you are, you are actually. It's like shooting a movie. You're right. a program. You got to do post production. Yeah, mm-hmm. do, you know. So that's so change is going to be difficult, and we have to be sure that we are inclusive. Mm-hmm. That yeah. We are bringing people along on this journey because you know, unfortunately, the train is going to leave the station. Yeah, but the question yeah. is, how many people can we get on board, and mm-hmm. and how comfortable will they be? So that's Melissa. One thing I'm yeah. really worried about. The other thing that I'm worried about is, you know, when and how will we be able to resume in-class experiences? Because I still believe that we cannot sustain, you know, the experience quality or the, for that matter, the price point. Mm-hmm. If, if we tell students that, congratulations, your fall quarter just went entirely online. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is not going to work. So we are struggling and trying to figure out, you know, because guidance keeps changing. We don't know whether we'll be in stage three or stage four or stage five. Or yeah. Right. We don't know if we'll be able to, you know. So it's easy, Melissa, to say that you want the in-class experience with is the high value experience. But hold on. Mm-hmm. You cannot go to the cafeteria. We'll have designated lanes when we yeah. walk to the classroom. Yeah. And if you're in the classroom, you'll be socially distant. Right. You have to wear masks the moment you, you know. Yeah. Get, get in the classroom. The professor will be separated with plexiglass. Right. So it's, it's going to be a crappy experience you know yeah. so you were in the classroom and by the way you can't hang out you can't yeah. you, 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 your, exa- your anxiety will be right. people are stressed and and the whole value of serendipitous you know hallway yeah. conversations in fact you're going to be told to leave the building right yeah you don't have those those serendipity those serendipity no yeah. conversations yeah i mm-hmm. worry about that um mm. That how can we continue to provide a high value in-person experience when uh, social distancing and restrictions are in place? And yeah. by the way, related to that is the problem that some of our international students may not even be able to make it back. Yeah. yeah. And uh, unfortunately, a lot of faculty we have are old. Right. So, so they have the right to say, I'm not going into a classroom because I'm a, a immunocompromised. Right. I, I have. Uh, so then they will be teaching from their homes. So how do we right. do that? How do we manage all of those variables to make sure that the students have as uh, high quality an experience as possible? So it's you know it's a challenging time. Yeah, it's fascinating. It, it some of the technologies that I thought were just kind of farcical years ago, I think are going to become much more relevant in the future, particularly around telepresence. Like the idea of feeling as though I am proximate with others. It's part of why Zoom, I think, has done so well in this period is that it is a good proxy for being in the same physical space as other humans. But I think as humans, we want public spaces to engage in. Even though I have a a very minuscule percent chance of catching COVID, I still go to the coffee shop to buy coffee because I want to be in a physical space with other people in my community. Like that's just part of, I think part of what it means to be human. And that's why it'll be interesting to rethink that when one specific physical space has been the, the prevailing concept of the, the graduate school, 
Whereas if you were Starbucks, which is another brand that's been getting a lot of attention lately, you know, they're, they're everywhere. Like they, they are in every physical location. You know, Warby Parker is another one that I, I was thinking about as well when you were talking where like, if Kellogg had kiosks, you know, or if, if there was a way for you to have satellite instances of the physical experience. All that, all that, it's, we're working on it. <laughs> oh, really? We're working on it. So let me explain. And by yeah. that, just brings the world of virtual and physical together in a very creative way. Mm-hmm. And we are, we are running a pilot with us with an interesting startup company that has created an holographic telepresence platform. Nice. So essentially, it is uh, it projects a live hologram of the speaker onto a virtual stage or a physical stage in a remote location. Mm-hmm. Imagine that I could be in conversation with Satya Nadella and Jeff Bezos in you know in in Seattle on the same stage, mm-hmm. projected live as holograms. Projected to Beijing, projected to Delhi, projected to Sao Paulo. So yeah. they have studios around the world. So they do 3D capture. That's and cool. then is, so I can literally be talking to you, Mike, mm-hmm. on a stage. Right. Yeah. Uh, but we are thousands of miles apart and the audience may be in a third location. So, right, right. So that is uh, uh, a combination of uh, physical and virtual because the audience will be physical. Right. Location. Mm-hmm. But that, but the projection is done uh, digitally. So yeah. there are some interesting new modalities. Yeah, uh, uh, you know, let 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 me just say here that uh, Zoom is uh, Zoom is just like uh, I think telepresence on 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 training wheels. Exactly. So yeah. It's 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 a good short term easy yeah. to use, but it is a very crappy platform relative to what you can do. And even four years ago, I did another pilot. You know. Mm. And four years ago, I did a pilot with Cisco with telepresence mm. where I taught a course. Mm-hmm. I, taught a, I taught four classes to seven locations worldwide mm. where we had audiences coming to the Cisco offices. Yep. So they have telepresence in all the locations. Right. I remember, yeah. So I, I, taught in, I taught in a classroom, which was the Rosemont office in Chicago, mm-hmm. but we had satellite connections in Beijing, yeah. in, in, in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. in Frankfurt, in uh, Miami. Uh, and, and and so on. So in each of those places, I had about seven to 10 alumni yep. who, who came physically to the office and I ran a classroom and it was immersive. Yeah, bet. You know, it was just like being in a classroom together. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, what I believe is there's a lot of opportunity at the high end, yeah. premium immersive digital experience yes. for learning that I think not a lot of people are sort of, you know, exploring like right. Life beyond Zoom. <laughs> So, so uh, you have an audacious goal, like that you said on, on your LinkedIn profile that had me grappling with how are you going to do this of 10x value. You're going to create 10x value for, for the students and for, for, for Kellogg when, when we go to this digital platform. My question is how, and two, how are you going to measure it? Uh, as well, well, I mean, I, we've, we've, we've in some sense already created uh, 10x. Let's, let's look at my spots. Yeah. So, so in my in my in person classes, my capacity is that I teach about you know sixty students. I teach three classes, give or take, you know maybe two hundred students. If my classes are entirely yeah. a lot of faculty, their classes don't fill up. So you know, hundred fifty is the average number of students that you teach, and and the cost to put on an average MBA course, you know, hold hang on to your seats is. North of one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars per class, mm. because the fully loaded cost for yeah. a faculty number is three yeah. to four, 
thousand that teach three classes. Let's put it another way. If I pay fully loaded a faculty member about $400,000 a year mm-hmm. and they teach 200 students. So that's a, a cost of $2,000 per student. And by the way, I'm not even looking at physical plant and all of right, that. Right. It's straight over. Mm-hmm. Relative that to that, in my Spocs, I've designed three courses, one on product strategy, one on digital marketing, one on AI. Uh, I've been in the market for about 16 months and we have enrolled over 5,000 students in my courses. And, and it's at a $2,500 price point on the average. Mm-hmm. So if you do the math, that's 12 million in revenues. Mm-hmm. And uh, I won't tell you what our margins are, but let's just say they're good. I- because the, the, you know, the variable cost is, is very low. So that's, so uh, I think, Melissa, if, even, if you say, even if you say that the experience is 0.5x, yeah. you know, since I've gone 20x in, yeah. in, in scale, I think I'm at 10x in terms of values. You, you need a new goal, I guess. Yeah. I mean, well, well, no, no I'm, I'm going to ask a, a couple more questions because I am curious. You have done that. So what, are you teaching purely, is it live or you just... The combination. As I said, this is Fox includes some, some live, but you know, but only 20% of the content is delivered. You know, or the, the, the contact hours are live. Uh-huh. That, that is where the scalability is coming from. I mean, so I will, I'm running these courses on eight-week cadences. I'm doing six deliveries a year. I have three courses, 18 deliveries, for which I do have to run four webinars each. So I will do 75 yeah. hours of webinars in a year. Mm. But that ends up producing 12 million in revenues. Mm-hmm. And then my second thing is uh, the value for me now, uh, the student, how are you bringing me, your alumni, back, the untapped person that you've filled? How are you getting me back into this? Because right now, 2500 for one course does not uh, seem like a value proposition that I'm rushing back for yet. But you yeah. did mention early on that, like, actually paying like a monthly subscription. Yeah, I think that there will be a there will be a continuum. There will be a continuum that goes all the way from one extreme is your two year two hundred thousand dollar degree. Yeah. Next level will be sort of an executive program that you can take to for a person two to three weeks at maybe twenty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. Next level is Spocs that you could take at you know twenty five hundred dollars. The next level below that is what Scott Galloway and company are doing, which is two-week programs at $500. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're very targeted, okay? And then then the next level down will be a subscription-based ongoing service. Yeah. Right. I think that as business schools, we need to bridge that entire continuum mm-hmm. of sort of a, from one end of sort of a monthly subscription, almost like a Netflix type of subscription, all the way up to that, you know, gold-plated premium degree. That you offer. So we are working hard to fill up different points of that continuum with offerings. Uh, we are not there yet with all of these these different. Uh, and by the way, these are offerings that are arranged, as you can see, yeah. in increasing order of scale, mm-hmm. but also at descending order of sort of you know the the cost and uh, and, and it's some compromise to the richness of the experience, but right. not as much as people would think. So, but it, but but then also it was interesting when you were musing a bit about the the highest end of this to justify the cost and the return in terms of the value exchange for the learner, that's where the really transformative, learn, immersive learning experiences right. will be designed. What fascinates you the most? Is it, you know, is it really across the continuum or is it designing those really surely optimal deliveries at the high end or de- designing something really scalable and algorithmic on the bottom end? Or is it, 
Is it the whole ecosystem? No, I, I think that I think that designing an algorithmic personalized lifelong learning journey mm-hmm. for the learner like Melissa, who mm-hmm. you know the value proposition that I will be a guide by your side mm-hmm. for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think, and 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 using the best of AI to personalize that learning. By the way, it's not going to be easy because that learning will also need to be chunked down in yeah. learning objects that then can be the flexibly combined into learning journeys. So there's a fair bit of engineering involved. Yeah. What is a course? There's no such thing as a course. It'll right. be learning objects, which will be mm-hmm. bite-sized concepts that you need to learn, self-contained with exercises and certification and valid mm-hmm. and assessment. So uh, that is a uh, it is a it is a project that is at the intersection of object-oriented programming, mm-hmm. software as a service, and AI and machine learning. Right. Yeah. So not an easy technical problem to solve. Right. That's what fascinates me the most. Yeah. And and how much human mediation is needed there too is an interesting question. Like how thin a layer of like human mediated engagement is needed to, to make I, it. Yeah, there's no reason that you can't have a human mediated engagement in, in multiple ways. So if I tell Melissa that I want to, her to pay $200 a month for the subscription service, which will feed her asynchronous content that will be personalized to her, well, there is no reason that I can't complement that with once a month live webinars with yeah. many faculty members right. uh, who talk about contemporary topics. Uh, right, for example, right. you know, uh, one of the contemporary topics I'm going to do a webinar on uh, soon for a company is uh, how do you do high-tech sales in a business-to-business company yeah. uh, you, when you are entirely virtual, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Things like that, that we, so we may complement that and those may be potentially even offered as premium add-ons. Think of a basic cable plus premium. Yeah, right. okay. yeah. yeah. Pay-per-view movies. So yeah. I want to look at the cable model or the streaming yeah. model to see if there are analogs there. Yeah. So right. that's where you can have a human touch. Mm-hmm. You can have communities, but and you can even add in career counselors. Exactly. Who work with yeah. alliance to say, hey, you know. Executive you coaching type things. Executive yeah. coaching, mm-hmm. career coaching. So we can mm-hmm. add human layers to that. Uh, and we can do that either as part of the base offering or as premium add-ons where, you know, Melissa can buy an hour of mentoring from a career coach. Yeah. Or she can, more importantly, connect with an alum. Yeah. You know, who may be able to guide yeah. her because we all want to give back. Or, or she could provide that coaching. Yeah, exactly. Yes, Max, come well, on. Well, what, what are you giving to Keller? You know, yeah. It's only about me, what I'm getting out of this, not, <laughs> not the other way around. Thank you very much. Well, it's a platform for uh, community building. Mm-hmm. Uh, for coaching, for mentoring, in addition to consumption. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited uh, for your, your challenge ahead and I'm excited to see what's going to happen here because I it's a very interesting space and it's a space that I thought we should have been moving and make a lot more progress in. So yeah, I, I've, I've never been more excited. I've never been more busy. Yeah. So, uh, you know, despite the fact that I'm not traveling, you know, I traveled 200,000 miles last year. I'd already gone around the world in right. February. This year, you know, I've done 25,000 miles by February after leverage came. And then what are you doing with all that extra time? Are you, are you being more productive or are you I'm being way more productive, but I'm ending up doing a lot more, uh, you know, this new responsibility that I had. Yeah. I'm literally, and, and of course I was in March, I ended up sort of starting right. with busiest teaching time. 
I go out of my teaching in 10 weeks and it happened to be those 10 weeks that they are quite a hit. So I've just finished teaching 90 hours of classes virtually. Wow. You could do a teaching memoir of that period because that, yeah. that, that sounds pretty uh, fascinating. One of the questions that I know we're getting close to time. One of the questions we always like to ask our guests is what trends are capturing your imagination these days? And, and frequently something we haven't maybe talked about that, that may be sort of emerging. I know you touched on some interesting stuff around telepresence and some of the things that you're piloting, but if we're looking at, you know, the decade of the 2020s off to this difficult start, but accelerating into the future, what's, what's, what's capturing your imagination? I think what's capturing my imagination the most is that many of the assumptions that we held as gospel truth will be broken and shattered and turned on their head over the next 10 years. Mm. And while we may hide under the shade of the Ivy League and the brands that we have for a while, the shakeout is coming. And that shakeout is first going to hit smaller universities and colleges, second and third tier uh, colleges, but eventually is going to creep into every university. So we are going to have to, I think that 10 years from now, uh, you will not recognize education, particularly business school education, which I think will be at the vanguard mm-hmm. it is to come. And, uh, you know, universities are some of the oldest living institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are the we have the most inertia, we have the most uh, uh, history, we have the most heritage, and yeah. we, are the least, we are the least amenable to change. But right. I think that uh, over the next 10 years, I see an immovable object being hit by an unstoppable force. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see what results. It's attributed to both Alan Kay and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. It seems like you're on a good track. Thanks very much for your time. Really got a lot out of that conversation with Dr. Sawney and Melissa. Hopefully you enjoyed it as well. It was really interesting to understand how much the context of the pandemic disrupted things and how Dr. Sawney really leaned into that disruption. I think there are lessons to be learned in that for all of us. With that, we're going to wrap this episode of the best of trending in education up. Hopefully you enjoyed it. Keep listening. We have some exciting interviews coming on Mondays for the next few weeks, and we'll continue to complement that with our Best Of series, which will be dropping on Thursdays. Also, check out our separate feed on The Future of Work, which is dropping on Fridays these days. You can find out about all of this at trendinginteducation.com. Also, track our substack at palmermedia.substack.com. Thanks as always for listening.